start by thanking all of you for giving me and my family vacation time. It helps uh, me stay the course to get rejuvenated. And I love taking family vacations. I uh, love spending time with my family. And, and usually we have a good time. Sometimes not as much. And I thought I'd give you a little snapshot into a Shirk family vacation. Now, uh, before you watch this movie clip, let me say, I do love my brother. I do love my brother, but as you can probably guess, uh, brothers and fellow elders don't always see eye to eye. We don't always get along. So let's, uh, let's roll the Shirk uh, family vacation clip here. I love my mom in that. Oh, and she's laughing. But And you can only imagine the abuse that I've taken all my life being the baby of the family and my big, ugly brother beating on me all day long. I'm just kidding. Love my brother. We have a great time on vacation. And this actually was a lot of fun. It was awesome because uh, Katya has this slow-mo feature on her iPod that you can take these things and make these wild videos. And so we obviously were having fun with that. I thought it was hilarious. It was kind of my, my doing there. But I hope that this weird little video helps solidify something in your mind and in your heart this morning. And here it is. Allow God's law to throw you towards the feet of Jesus to receive by faith his abundant mercy, grace, and peace. Allow God's law to throw you towards the feet of Jesus to receive by faith his abundant grace, mercy, and peace. See, God's law does us a great big favor. It picks us up and it chucks us to the feet of Jesus to resume a position of, of great need. Great need. God's law shows us God's righteousness and then shows us how far we fall short of his righteousness. The law shatters us so that the gospel can heal us. Paul comes right out and says, the law is good. And I hope to show you this morning that the law is good. God's law is oftentimes misinterpreted, misunderstood, and misused. Misinterpreted, misunderstood, and misused. The false teachers in Ephesus had swerved from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, and had veered off the road of sound doctrine right into the ditch of heresy and useless discussions. Uh, they wanted to be teachers of the law, but they were teaching strange doctrine, um, different doctrine. They didn't understand the law, and they didn't understand the gospel, they were lost in useless myths, genealogies, speculations, and vain discussions. Now, here is how many people misinterpret, misunderstand, and misuse the law. It was likely an issue in Ephesus, though the text of 1 Timothy is not explicit about this. Here is the issue. People often see the law as their means of justification before God. 
People often see the law as their means of justification before God. In other words, they believe that if they just follow God's rules, if they are good people, then God will accept them. But that's a criminal use of the law. Criminal use. It's a use of the law which overlooks human sinfulness and inability to follow God's law, fuels self-righteousness and pride, and diminishes the necessity and the power of the gospel. John Piper explained that Israel often twisted the law of Moses into legalism and, quote, severed it from its foundation of faith, failed to stress dependence on the Spirit, and thus turned the commandments into a job description for how to earn the wages of salvation, end of quote. Is law-keeping the way for you and me to be accepted by God? Should we count our own righteousness, count on that righteousness, to save us? First, look at verse 9. Was the law established to pat good people on the back? No. It was laid down for bad people to tell them how bad they really are. That's really important to understand, so I want you just to hold on to that thought. Uh, For a moment, we'll get to it in a few minutes. Second, law-keeping cannot justify anyone. Listen, Romans 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Galatians 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Galatians 3, verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Ephesians 2.9 says that salvation is not a result of works so that no one may boast. 2 Timothy 1.9 adds, not because of our works. And Titus 2.5 adds, not because of works done by us in righteousness. It's criminal to use the law as our justification before God. The law was not intended to justify us, nor does the law have the power to justify us. We don't know exactly what the false teachers were teaching in Ephesus, uh, but whatever it was precisely, it fostered abuse of the law and abuse of the gospel. See, in verse 8, when Paul said, now we know, or but we know, he was contrasting himself and Timothy and others who knew how to rightly use the law with the false teachers who didn't have any idea how to use the law. They were lost. So let's dig into this. Paul said in verse 8, Now we know that the law is good. The Greek grammar emphasizes that word good. The law is really good. And any theology that demonizes God's law is not sound doctrine because God's law is a precious gift. For you, God's law is a precious gift to you. By the, by the context of this, I understand the word, or I'm sorry, the word law to refer to the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, more precisely the moral law summarized as loving God and others. 
you can see the allusion to the Ten Commandments in verses uh, 9 and 10. As Christians, let's be clear, we are no longer under the law, no longer condemned by the law because we are now in Christ and we are under grace. But that doesn't mean that the law is bad or obsolete and that we no longer need it. Now, you may have heard the term antinomianism. It's kind of a fancy word. You may have heard it. Maybe you didn't. Antinomianism simply means no law. And it suggests that Christians are no longer obligated to obey the law. Now, that is very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to abolish the law. Paul said the law is good. It still is good. The Old Testament says the law is good. Psalm 19.7 says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Sometime read Psalm 119. It says things like, blessed are those who walk in the law of the Lord, and the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces, and your law is my delight. And then the New Testament comes and confirms that the law is good, Romans 7, verses 12 and 16. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. The law is unquestionably good, but it must be used lawfully, lawfully. God's law is a precious gift to you for you to use lawfully. It's a precious gift to you for you to use lawfully. Look at verse 8 again. Now, we know that asparagus is good if one prepares it lawfully. Amen. Right, Paul? All right. Are you guys awake? Come on. Stay with me. It doesn't say that. You've got to test what I'm saying. But I grew up hating asparagus, probably because when I had asparagus, it was overcooked and limp. Now, I don't know about you. Overcooked and limp asparagus is disgusting. It's not good. And that's just how I guess I grew up having it. And then I had it when it was prepared lawfully. And, and it's good. It's good. And a lot of good things, if you think about it, a lot of good things are that way. They're good. But if they're misused, they don't seem very good. They, they seem bad. As I said before, it's criminal to use the law as our justification before God. Paul was careful about this to clarify that those certain charlatans were abusing the law, misusing it. Hey, the law is still good. It's still good. Verse 8. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Don't throw the beautiful baby out with the bathwater. The baby's beautiful. Keep the baby. The false teachers were abusing the law. They were missing the entire point of it. But the law was still good. Still good. So, how does someone use the law lawfully? Well, first, the law must be obeyed perfectly. No mistakes, folks. Perfectly. Now, we've all failed at that, so we're in trouble. So now, considering we are not righteous under the law, how can unrighteous people use the law lawfully? Very important point. Stay with me. Second, the law must be understood and used alongside of the gospel. 
Paul connects the law and gospel in verses 8 through 11. I hope you can see the connection. John Calvin noted that Paul, quote, maintains that his gospel is so far from being opposed to the law that it is a powerful confirmation of it. End of quote. Stay with me here. The law explains God's expectations for humanity. Then the law shows humanity how far they fall short of God's expectations. The law is really honest, really in your face. It tells people they failed. They failed. That's what the law says. You have failed. You are not righteous. And you are condemned before a holy God. Under the law. But then the gospel comes right in and shows condemned humanity how Jesus fulfilled all the law in perfect righteousness, took sin and God's judgment upon himself on the cross, died in the place of unrighteous people, raised from the dead to conquer sin, Satan, hell, and death, and makes unrighteous people righteous before God by grace, through faith, and the imputation of his righteousness to those who believe and gives regenerated believers the Holy Spirit to empower them to obey the law out of love for God. So to summarize that, the law exposes someone's sinfulness and need of Jesus Christ. And the gospel provides them with Jesus Christ who justifies them through faith and empowers them To obey the law. The law and the gospel work together. So, if you use the law unlawfully, if you separate it from the gospel and use the law unlawfully, which the false teachers of Ephesus were doing, the law will not seem good. It will be damning. It will be like the government telling you, I'm going, we, the government of the United States of America, are going to kill you if you don't jump to the moon. Well, I can't jump to the moon. The government's going to come in and kill me because I'm not getting there. It is unlawful to trust the law to do something it can't do. Get us to God. Your law-keeping cannot get you to God. Theologians talk about the threefold use of the law. The threefold use of the law. Please commit this to memory. Okay? Get the three things. Um, it can really help you. The law does three amazing things for us. Number one, the law graciously shows us our sinfulness and need for Jesus. Shows us our sinfulness and need for for Jesus. Some call this the pedagogical use of the law. The law tells us that God is righteous, but also tells us that we are unrighteous. And it is very kind of God to tell us how unrighteous we are and how much we need his son. Romans 3.20 says, through the law comes knowledge of sin. And Paul added in Romans 7, 7, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For, how would, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. That, that's easy to understand. 
Oh, how kind of God to tell us in the law how unrighteous we are. Think of it this way. You might find it really annoying to receive a text in the middle of watching a good movie. Oh, come on, are you kidding? Now! But your feeling, your approach, your thought towards that text would be entirely different if that text alerted you to the fact that your house was on fire. Now, all of a sudden, thank you for that text. That was timely. Martin Luther said it well. He said that the law shows sinners their sin, quote, so that by recognition of sin, they may be humbled, frightened, and worn down, and so may long for grace. End of quote. You use the law lawfully if it helps you long for grace. Number two. The law graciously restrains criminals in society. It restrains criminals in society. Some call this the political use of the law. I love how Romans 13, 3 through 4 put this. This is one of my favorite passages of scripture. Joe Gruber, pay attention to this, buddy. This is you and your buddies. Thank you, Joe. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. And you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. I love that line, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The law has big guns of enforcement. And that law and those guns restrain evil. Anti-theft laws and AR-15s deter people from robbing banks. You use the law lawfully when it deters you from doing evil. Number three, the law graciously tells believers how they should love and serve God. The law tells you and me how we should love and serve God. Some call this the pious use of the law. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. As Christians, and this last one is for Christians, as Christians, we use the law lawfully when we use it as a guide to love and serve God. Now, sometimes husbands, they don't pick up on things like they should. You know what I'm talking about? And it's kind of wives to clue them in. All right. So the other day, Christina came into my office, and with a smile, she said this. My birthday is in two weeks, and I'd like to do something with you, but I don't want to plan it and line up childcare. All right. Now that I can work with. That's, that's clear. All right. I'm not a detail guy. If you know me, my heads are in the cloud. My head is in the clouds half the time. And I don't know what's going on. And so it's helpful for Christina to tell me how to love Christina. Why? So that I can love and serve Christina. That's the end goal. As Christians, we want to love and serve our good father. And he is very kind to tell us in his law how we should love and serve him. The terminal diagnosis we receive from the law is uh, it's really hard to hear, but it is good because it 
readies us to receive the care of the physician and to follow the physician's game plan. Make sure you understand this. God's law is not laid down for righteous people, but for unrighteous people like you and like me and like Paul and like the Ephesians. It's not laid down for righteous people. It's laid down for unrighteous people. Couldn't the blind false teachers see their own sinfulness? No, because they were too busy with all these myths and endless genealogies, which was distracting them from the true purpose of the law. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, he said, but sinners. Apart from Christ, are you righteous? Am I? Do we have a need for a physician? Let's quickly go through the first six things here, which seem to coincide with the first four commandments. God's law is laid down for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. These are the no law people who live in rebellion against God, the no worship of God people. Who, who fail to live up to God's holy expectations, the no-holiness people who live profane and irreverent lives. The law is for those people, and apart from Jesus Christ, we are those people. We, right here, are those people. And then Paul lists egregious sins that plainly coincide with the fifth through the ninth commandment. Commandment. God's law is laid down for those who strike fathers and mothers. Now, that could be violence against your father or your mother, or it could actually be murdering your father or your mother. In Exodus 21, children who simply struck or cursed their parents were put to death. The law is laid down because humanity naturally dishonors their parents. All right, God's law is laid down for murderers. Taking human life unlawfully now is a serious breach of God's law, which is laid down because humanity naturally hates and murders. God's law was laid down. This one's especially relevant for our culture today. The next two. And the evangelical church, which has wafted and compromised on these two to such a great extent that God is so grieved over this and Christians especially need to realize that God is sovereign over sexuality. God's law is laid down for the sexually immoral. God lays out sexual boundaries for our good. I wonder if we believe that. He lays them out for our good. The Greek word may actually sound familiar to you, pornos. Does that sound familiar? One source stated this about pornos. Quote, the New Testament is characterized by an unconditional repudiation of all extramarital and unnatural intercourse. End of quote. The Bible is so explicit on this issue. Marriage is one man and one woman in covenant with each other, and sex is to be enjoyed only within that covenant. So logically now, any deviation from sex between one man and one woman within the marriage covenant is sexual immorality. It's a grab bag for all kinds of sexual sin. 
The law is laid down because humanity naturally desires illicit sexual expression. God's law is also laid down for men who practice homosexuality. I did an extensive sermon series on this. You can find it online on our webpage. Listen to it. It is uh, accurate to God's word and faithful. I hope to show discretion at this point while also being clear. The biblical term pornos and other biblical words related to it sufficiently condemn homosexuality on their own. But Paul used two words in verse 10, making the prohibition even plainer. Malakos and arsenikoites. Two words. So you have, you have more in the English here. Two words in the Greek making this point. These two terms refer, refer to precisely the effeminate passive partner and the active partner. Folks, Paul used plain language that is very easily understood, a point many people and many churches do not want to concede. When a professing Christian argues in defense of homosexuality, they have already swerved from a lawful use of the law and the gospel itself into the ditch of strange doctrine and speculation, period. Paul said the law is good, and if that is true, and we go back to the Old Testament law, that means these statements, statements like this, which are in the Old Testament, are good statements. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination, Leviticus 18.22. The law is laid down because humanity naturally strays from God's sexual boundaries. God's law is laid down for enslavers. This is actually a considerable point that skeptics use to argue against the validity of the Bible because skeptics say that the Bible condones slavery. And some Christians are like, well, I don't know what to say to that. How about using text like this? Here, Paul used the word for slave traders. Those who kidnap people and sell them into slavery wake up United States many years ago. The law is laid down because humanity naturally steals. God's law is laid down for liars and perjurers or people who say false things and swear falsely or fail, fail to carry through on what they swore. They failed to keep their word. The law is laid down because humanity naturally dodges the truth and lies. And then Paul said this. At the end of his extensive list of horrible sins, Paul said this. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Think about that. Think about that. Each of the sins that Paul mentioned and any other sin in Ephesus that was going on at that time, all of them are contrary to sound doctrine. Strange doctrine gives birth to sin. What we believe deep down, and we act on those things because we don't believe rightly about God, all sin is hostile or antagonistic or adversarial toward God's law and the gospel. On the one hand, there is sound or healthy or, or accurate or uncorrupt or true or safe or whole doctrine. And then everything else that deviates from sound doctrine. Two things. 
And all sin is a deviation from sound doctrine. I really like how Dr. Philip Ryken put it. He said, unhealthy theology produces unhealthy conduct. And an unsound life always betrays unsound doctrine. Every sin comes ultimately from a failure to believe rightly about God. That's good. That's really good. When you and I break God's law, when we go our own way, when we say, no, God, not your way, my way, my way, we act in sedition against sound doctrine. The law is laid down to show us our seditious false doctrine and that we have thought wrongly about God and therefore have rebelled against God. Now, verse 11 begins with a preposition, and I'm sure you get very excited about prepositions every day of your life. Not really, but it's a preposition that links the gospel to sound doctrine, which came right before it. And it clarifies how to use the law rightly. Don't miss this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is sound doctrine that showcases the glory and happiness of God for us to enjoy. In verse 11, Paul used the the preposition in accordance with to connect the gospel with sound doctrine. Do you see that? It's a prepositional phrase, and they connect. So the gospel is sound doctrine. Listen, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted, the gospel is sound doctrine. Dr. Riken said, the Bible insists that there is one standard for Christian theology. This standard is the teaching of Christ and his apostles found in the pages of the New Testament in full agreement with the prophetic witness of the Old Testament. We must take the law and the gospel together. They work together. The law exposes our sinfulness. The law exposes our need for Jesus, our desperate need for Jesus. And the gospel gives us Jesus who becomes our righteousness. The law picks us up and chucks us and throws us to the feet of Jesus where we rest there at his feet in a great position of need. Need. For his grace, for his mercy, for his forgiveness, for his peace, for his joy. And then Jesus picks us up and he gives us in himself the peace and the love and the joy that our heart so desperately longs for. Do you know what the gospel is? Do you know? The gospel is the news of the glory of a happy God. God is splendid. God is beautiful. God is majestic. God is mighty. God is brilliant. God is light. God is holy. God's glory is the wonderful perfection of all that he is. God's glory is the good news for us. But Paul also said, blessed God, meaning God is infinitely happy. Infinitely happy. He is infinitely whole. He is infinitely favored and well off. The glory of a happy God is the gospel. The law tells you that you are condemned by this glorious and happy God and cut off from his glory and cut off from his happiness and that you will perish in your sin. But the gospel, the gospel tells you that though you are lawless, disobedient, ungodly, unholy, profane, and truly a sinner through and through and through, right down to your bone. That's what you are. You are a sinner. 
And the grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord, then overflows for us from the cross. The gospel tells you that Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners in order to display, to display his glory, to display his happiness in them. The man Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom in order to purchase you, in order to have you, to delight in fellowship with you. To the glory and happiness of God. That's the gospel. The law condemns you, but Jesus acquits you. The the law accuses you, but Jesus justifies you. The law breaks you, but Jesus heals you. Listen. The perfect life, substitutionary death. And pioneering resurrection of Jesus Christ is sound doctrine that rescues you from your sins, but also empowers you to fight sin and to obey the law to the glory and happiness of God. Oh, that we would rejoice in Romans 8, 2 through 4. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law, get this, might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. That is the gospel. That is sound doctrine. The gospel confirms the law. Yes, but it also does what the law cannot do. It gives us Jesus who becomes our perfect law keeper. And by grace through faith, we receive his perfect righteousness and his Holy Spirit to empower us to obey God's law. Yes, the law is good because it graciously throws us to the feet of Jesus who loves us, saves us, and empowers us to now understand the law rightly, to view it rightly, and then to use the law lawfully as God wants us to use it by his spirit. I said last week that sound doctrine promotes love and godliness in us. The gospel is the power to fight sin and the power to live in conformity to God's law. But even better, in conformity to Christ who is the fulfillment of of God's law. Paul was entrusted with this gospel. It was this gospel which compelled him. And then with apostolic authority, he charged Timothy to charge these false teachers to stop teaching bad theology. Stop with this, with this awful abuse of the law and, and Timothy contend for the gospel. Contend, make sure that the teaching and preaching ministry of Ephesus is focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ and not these weird ideas about the law that are distracting people from Christ. Now this series, it's subtitled The Gospel at Work in the Church. And notice that the the subtitle is not The Law at Work in the Church. The law alone at work in a church will destroy people. Imagine being yelled at. Week after week after week, you got to do God's law. You've got to obey what's wrong with you people. And that you were told every week that you're a pathetic, miserable sinner. And that's all you heard. 
That's depressing. I don't want to go to a church like that. Who does want to go to a church like that? Those are unhappy, miserable, and dying churches. But just as miserable, just as miserable, my friends, imagine going to a church week after week and being told that you're a great person. Imagine being rallied every week to just release your inner greatness and do great things for God. Imagine being told that week after week. That's an unlawful use of the law as well, and that destroys people because it encourages self-sufficiency. Those are self-deceived, pseudo-happy, dying churches. People are either inflated with self-righteousness, look at all the awesome things I'm doing. God likes me, and he certainly doesn't like you because of how great I am. Or people are wrecked beneath the weight and oppression of having to do something that they know they cannot do. Oh, that's a miserable place to be in. It is the gospel that must work in a church, meaning the law humbles people by exposing their sinfulness and utter need for Jesus. As the gospel displays for them the supremacy of Jesus Christ and God's love for them, despite their lack of greatness. The gospel humbles people in the inability by show, in their inability, by showcasing God's glorious ability in their obedience. Huge difference. So, what is the point of sound doctrine in a church? Why are we, why are we so interested in thinking rightly here at Jerusalem Church about God's word? Why? Ah, doctrine divides. Come on, lighten up, Jerusalem Church. Don't you know that people would, more people would come if you just lighten up a little bit and not be so serious about sound doctrine, talking about all that Bible, getting in deep, picking apart the scriptures, it's even in Sunday school. It's even in the kids' Sunday school. Don't you know more kids want candy? <laughs> candy is dangerous. At least at the shirk house. Here's why sound doctrine is so critical, so vital for a church. Because it acts to lead people to be so captivated by the glory of God that they recognize their utter depravity and need of Jesus, see the beauty of Jesus in the gospel, repent of their sins, and trust in Christ alone in order to be reconciled with a glorious and happy God and walk by the Spirit in power to obey God's law for the glory of God. That's why we need it. The glory of God is at stake. Sound doctrine must lead people to gospel-changed lives. Don't go through the motions. It is so frustrating to see the people of God, even in myself, folks, even in me, we're just like, eh, I'll obey if I feel like. Whatever. Oh, it's a poison. It's a poison. When the gospel works in a church, alongside of the law, it fuels love for God and it fuels love for other people. We must preach the gospel and we must hold the law together. Now, has the law picked you up and thrown you to the feet of Jesus? Has it done that for you? Or are you one of those crafty, shifty Mm, one of those people that looks at the law and is like, 
I'm pretty good. Look at all those sick sinners in Mannheim and Lancaster County that are not living like I am. Look at my life. I'm righteous. I wear a suit. I have a tie on. I've got a beautiful family. You see how hard I work at my job? Do you see how much money I give to my church? You look at my righteousness. I'm doing pretty great. And they're the ones into drugs. They're the ones into alcohol. They're the ones beating their wives. They're the ones that are cussing a blue streak like a sailor. They're the ones. Has the law picked you up and thrown you to the feet of Jesus Christ? And are you aware, my friend, of how much you need Jesus Christ? If so, be thankful. Oh, be so thankful that God has been kind to you to pick you up and toss you there, to tell you who you really are. Be grateful for the law because the law shows you something that you otherwise would not see. You're terrible. God is awesome. And look what he does for you in Jesus to make you a precious child of his. Be grateful for the law. And then when you're grateful for the law, then fix your eyes on Jesus Christ who is your righteousness and he is your law keeper and he does it for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the law. It is good. And when we read it, we say, I can't do that. I'm not strong enough. I'm not holy enough. I'm not righteous enough. I will be crushed by God beneath the law. God, that, man, that's what the law does for us. But then... Oh, the sweet message of Jesus who comes in and says, I know what the law is. And guess what? I fulfilled it all for you so that you may look up from your beat up position to me who will pick you up by grace through faith, will clean you up and will work in you by my spirit to conform you to me. Oh God, I pray that Jerusalem church would love the law And love what it does for them, but then see that it has no power in their life, but only Jesus has the power to change them, transform them, conform them, so that they can do what the law says, joyfully. And man, when we do what the law says, when when we withhold ourselves from lust, oh God, how much joy it brings. When, When we tell the truth, even in hard circumstances, oh, what joy it brings for us. When, when we honor our mommy and daddy, how much joy it brings us as a child to do what God says by the power of his spirit alone. God, you are so gracious to us to give us the law, and you are so gracious to us to give us Jesus Christ, who is the gospel. I pray that we fix our eyes on him, and we trust him to do what the law could never do, what we could never do, make us righteous before a holy God. In your Son's name, for his fame, we pray. Amen.